This episode of Theories of Americans is brought to you by Toyota. As a proud partner of those who dare to dream, Toyota isn't settling with having them as words on a page. The stories of these Asian American dreamers need to be seen, heard, and supported. We hope these stories will inspire you to chase your own Asian American dream. Tiffany, thanks for making time to chat with us. Uh, we're in Inglewood here in LA, and we're just near SoFi Stadium where there's a football game going on today. And uh, welcome. Thank, Thank you, you. For, for doing this. We've been friends a while and pandemic friends, online friends, friends in the speaking space, friends in the being loud on LinkedIn, advocating for our communities, and really having transitioned from our traditional careers in the corporate world to now building a business, chasing our dreams, and helping other people live their best lives and being proud of who they are in the workplace and beyond. And Mm. so tell us a little bit about you. Who is Tiffany Yu and uh, what does she do? Yeah. I mean, where do we start? I don't know. (laughs) Um, So I'll I'll start by providing just a little bit of context. So I'm, I'm the daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant, my dad, and a refugee from the Vietnam War. And I think like one of the first defining moments in my life happened when I was nine, over Thanksgiving weekend, my dad, uh, my mom had to travel for a business trip, so a couple of my siblings dropped her off at the airport. And on the way home, he lost control of the car. And I acquired a slew of injuries, including breaking, uh, permanently paralyzing one of my arms that was holding the, holding this. Mm. I broke my femur and my tibia and one of my legs. And, and much later, I'd be diagnosed with a mental health disability, post-traumatic stress disorder. All of that, in addition to my dad passed away. And so I call this like compounded grief. It's Mm -hmm. grief how many of us understand in terms of loss of a loved one. Grief, I call disability grief in terms of now I had this new identity as a person with a disability. And also the grief of the loss of childhood innocence, like childhood trauma or adverse childhood experiences. So a lot of the work that I do now is heavily, heavily, I mean, all influenced by that. I think there's a saying like your mess is your message. And I just grew up feeling, I grew up feeling so alone. Like it was instilled in me by my immigrant mom that we shouldn't share anything that might be seen as shameful Mm. because if we did, then people would think something was wrong with our family and not want to associate with us. So the fact that now I had a visible disability, the car accident was seen as shameful. So I was told not to tell anyone about it. And the fact that my dad had died was also, was also, you know, seen as like maybe something was wrong in the family lineage that this had to happen. So I told everyone my dad was away on a trip. And I actually think that those 12 years of not telling anyone the story of the car accident is ultimately what exacerbated a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. So today I feel like I'm like a multi-hyphenate, but as you mentioned, I I, I studied I studied finance and accounting at Georgetown and worked on Wall Street for a few years at Goldman, did a couple different corporate jobs until moving into the disability advocacy space full time in 2017. So in addition to being the CEO and founder of Diversability, which is a community, to me, it's kind of like 
always be creating, but like focused on disability leadership, like membership community, the premier membership community focused on advancing disability leadership and advocacy. And now I create content and do speaking as well. And I, it, you, you've done a lot to advocate for the communities, both the disabled community and the Asian American community. You've raised scholarship funds at uh, your alma mater at Georgetown. You speak internationally on stages, both physical and virtually to advocate for that. And, and you mentioned, you know, after you went through that, you, you were told directly and indirectly to not talk about it, but now it is something that you lead with perhaps, and obviously you have built not just a, a brand, but a business around that. What was that evolution like for you? And was it a gradual decision to own it and live it? Or was there something that happened that made you more comfortable or made it even more of a necessity for you to own that as a part of your story. Mm. Yeah, so I call myself like an accidental disability advocate, also like an accidental community builder and entrepreneur. And and this is actually a fun story and, and connected to my to my Asian identity is from my freshman from my freshman year at college to my junior year at college, I was very heavily involved in the founding of a Taiwanese American club. Mm. Taiwanese American Students Association. And the interesting story was that uh, during freshman orientation, I met, I met who would ultimately become one of the co-founders of this Taiwanese club. And she said one of her parents was from Taiwan. And, you know, we're all trying to meet each other and we're trying to find like points of, of commonality. And I go, oh, one of my parents is from Taiwan. And then as a joke, I said, we should start a club. Mm. But then I think that seed was planted and we started to meet other people who were Taiwanese who didn't feel like, and the club, the club on campus, there was a Chinese student alliance who didn't feel like the Chinese student alliance was encompassing of the experience of being the daughter of a Taiwanese parent or mm -hmm. having some, some connection to Taiwan, this country, not country, you know, caught in this political trilateral relationship. And so my senior year, I actually went to Jackie, who was the person I met at freshman orientation, and she was my roommate senior year. And I said, I think I want to do what we did for the Taiwanese club, but for disabled people. Mm -hmm. um, so Diversability actually started as a student club. And to be totally transparent, I actually think that creating the Taiwanese club is what gave me confidence that we that I could create another club. So it was just yeah. club to club, right? And Interestingly enough, I reached out to two disabled students that I knew at Georgetown, and I said, hey, I'm thinking about starting this club. Would you be interested in joining, or do you think there's a need for it? And I never heard from them. And if we've learned anything from the past couple of years of anti-Asian violence, silence is violence, you know? Um, and so, or they may have just been overwhelmed with email, but they didn't think it was important enough right. to come back and chime in. And so I was like, okay, well, that's strike number one. The two people who I thought would be part of this founding team I haven't heard from them. And so the next thing was I started kind of planting the seed for this disability club with a few other people. And one was kind of my staff manager because I was a resident assistant at Georgetown. So he's like part of the Georgetown staff. And he's like, I love the idea. There's another person on the Georgetown staff who's super passionate about disability studies. You should go meet with them. So I went to go meet with her and she goes, I love what you're trying to do, but Georgetown isn't ready yet. And this idea is too mm. radical. And I'm like, was the Taiwanese students thing radical? Like, how was the disability right. thing radical? So then I was like, that's strike number two. I just need a strike number three. And then I'll say, I tried. Mm. So the third 
kind of turning point happened. And I still remember the day. It was October 22nd, 2009. And that was the first day that I actually, that's the first, that's the date that I remember sharing the story of the car accident publicly. And Georgetown at the time, and I'm sorry this is long-winded, but I think all of this context is helpful. Georgetown was thinking of starting a graduate certificate around disability studies. Mm -hmm. So they had brought together all the D.C. area schools for this one-day, half-day conference. And they had a student panel, so they had me and a couple other students on there. And at the, and so I shared my story, and I just remember like crying because that was the first time that I think anyone had given me permission that it was okay to share that story and that it mattered enough to share mm -hmm. with other people, right? Because it had been internalized directly or indirectly by my family that this is not something we should tell anyone. So at the end of, of my remarks, I said, you know, but I'm thinking about starting this club around a disability identity and, and building disability pride, but I don't think it's going to happen because I've reached out to a couple people and they say, we're not ready yet. And keep in mind, it's all the D.C. area schools. So like we have Gallaudet, American, GW, like Howard. And then like random students and professors who were there were like, I'll be part of your club. And so we formed, I mean, we originally called it the Diversibility Working Group. So do I think this, like, I'm actually so grateful for my experience in the Taiwanese American Club that helped create the foundation and give me the confidence for what ultimately ended up becoming not only a disability club, but diversity as a company. I, there's so many wonderful things. I mean, thank you for sharing that story because I think many of us have done the club stuff, whether it was in high school or college. And at least from my perspective, there's clubs that help you get jobs. So that's the professional stuff. But the social clubs where your identity or your community is the anger, those were born out of love. Mm. And those were not necessarily going to be helpful but as community builders now, as brand builders now, those both experiences and the connections that we've made, in my case, 20 years ago, are the ones that are really helping me drive this business. And also, it's the same thing. You get a bunch of people who uh, think the same way, like the same things, or want to have the same end result and saying, hey, now let's build a business around it. Because in college, you didn't think, really think about sustainability, but now we have to, right? And so... And I think your story is wonderful because you don't know who's actually going to support you when you have the idea. Mm. And sometimes you just have to put it out into the universe as you did in the conference. And then people who you don't know say they want to join. Because I think we also have a limited, perhaps a definition of, oh, these are the people that I think might be my target audience, but they may not be. So that was many years ago. You then went into banking and went down the corporate route. Was the dream shelved or was it continued to be built while you were trying to do the best that you could, you know, from a traditional career perspective, because you had the opportunity to, how did that evolve in the first chapter? So the short-term goal for diversity in 2009 was for it to just be recognized by the university. And that process mm -hmm. takes about a year. And interestingly enough, in addition to the Taiwanese club, what gave me confidence was I had my full-time offer to go back to Goldman Sachs in hand coming into my senior year. And so I never, honestly, I never anticipated incorporating diversity as a business or doing the work that I'm doing now. I actually thought that I would be a lifetime banker. Actually, every job that I've had, you know, I've, um, and, and it's been a jungle gym of a career. Like I, when I started at Goldman, I was like, I love that, you know, as you progress up in your career, the skills that you need to be successful change, right? From very right. analytical to then client facing. 
while I was at Goldman, I was actively involved in their disability employee resource group. So it was like, I could still do the community thing, um, but it didn't need to be under the Diversability brand name. Mm. And it wasn't until I worked at a startup called Revolt. And on paper, interestingly enough, working at Revolt was everything I thought my my dream job or my dream career would be. I got my own office. I had a director level title at like 25. I was sitting in on board meetings. This company was founded by P. Diddy. So he was the chairman of the board. I was like sitting in on board meetings with Diddy. And and I have to drop that in here because when I tell people that, it makes me sound cool. But I know nothing about hip hop. So I, I, I often don't. I also that heard that uh, <laughs> the generational mark of how old you are is easily identifiable by how you call him. And so if you're old, you call him Puff Daddy. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, the, and the cool kids call him Diddy. Because that's what he, mm-hmm. that's the evolution of the name. Yes. Yes. So we, so we had to, I had to age myself in here. Um, but now that I was working at a startup, I didn't have access to kind of like the disability communities that I had been in, in my other corporate jobs. And so I got really curious because Revolt was black founded, black owned, and they've really tried to prioritize racial diversity and also women in terms of senior mm. levels and giving them giving them access um, and and senior leadership roles. So while I was at Revolt, because I was no longer plugged into disability communities, that's where I actually started to think like, hey, like I did this thing in college and I've been part of these disability communities at at my other companies. You know, what does disability advocacy look like for me in this current role? And for a long time, and you know, this is, this is, how we grow and evolve. For a long time, I said, my my advocacy is that I'm existing in these corporate spaces. Mm. And I actually think that that is a form of advocacy. Like, I think there's a saying, like, your success is your form of advocacy, is your form right. of protest. So after my time at Revolt, I ended up moving out to San Francisco for a job at another startup. And during this time, I was running Diversability as a side hustle. I was part of like the side hustle generation. It was very popular at that time, and I even think coming into now. And I guess two interesting things happened. Number one was after we had been hosting Diversability events in New York City, which is where I was living, still working full-time at Revolt, the New York Public Library came to us and they said, hey, we've been seeing these disability mm. events that you're hosting. Can we hire a couple of your community members to speak on a panel about their experiences at the library for a staff awareness training. Wow. And here's here's the money. And and at that time, I, we were just like an informal meetup group on Eventbrite hosting these events, like not even thinking anything about it. And then I was like, we're not even, I remember hiring like a lawyer last minute, like look over the contract. Cause I was like, we're not even anything. And that's when we incorporated and we realized, wow, people realize that there's value in the mm-hmm. disability experience and can use that experience to like make their staff better and make their lives better. And so that's actually when we incorporated. So it was like a long journey of kind of being informal. Mm. And then someone else created an accidental business model for us. And, and I know I'm jumping around, but after about six months in my, in my, in my role at the startup in San Francisco, I ended up getting fired. And I told myself, and, you know, I think this is a part of many of our careers that I don't think we talk that much about because there's shame there, right? We feel like we did something wrong, even though it's the economy or I also want to highlight, like, I'm not good at everything. Like, I think people look at me and they're like, you've done all these things and you were the best. And I was like, no, I got fired because sales was like not 
was not the yeah. right role for me. And I told myself, I'm going to do this diversibility thing like in between until I find my next job. And now it's been five and a half years. I also started what I'm doing after I was fired. And so shout out to the people who sometimes need that decision made for them mm. to finally say, what am I going to do? Get another job and be miserable again and, and go through that decision making process. Um, that is so cool. And again, I think there's um, the, the theme of sort of the, um, you know, I don't know, falling into things or serendipity or, you know, the universe having bigger plans for you. Because, um, you know, you and I started talking a lot offline as we became friends about our speaking business and how to properly charge into market yourself and value our time. And the first time you were given that opportunity, you know, that was sort of the, the anchoring or sort of the validating moment. Uh, the public library saying like, hey, we value your opinion, mm. um, you know, as we continue to do free events or discount events for community groups and things like that. I'm curious to know how you then decided to pursue that dream, because the I think some of the at least for many Asian Americans and many uh, immigrant kids in general, we have to balance what our parents want for us professionally mm. and then to perhaps either. And, and for some there's an alignment between what your parents want, what society wants, and what you want. Then great, you're lucky. But many of us don't have that. Mm -hmm. And then for you, there seems to be this added layer of your mom, especially not wanting you to talk about the accident. Mm -hmm. But now there's also this, this is your identity publicly and professionally. And wondering how you balance having shifted away from the expectations or defining your dreams by the expectations set forth for you or having now to define it for yourself. Yeah. Um, and this is probably like where my, where there's, there's a little bit more growth for me personally. And, mm -hmm. and in the context of my family is I heard another, another Asian disability advocate say, because we are disabled, we can never be the model minority. And when I heard her say that her name's Mia, it actually really put things into perspective. So I think I really tried like Goldman top of my class, you know, Bloomberg, like co-founded their disability employee resource group, like sitting in on board meetings with revolt. Like I literally tried and it was never enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that in that 2017 timeframe, when I got fired and decided that I was going to focus on this, I realized that the impact and vision I have for the type of world I want to live in, I think maybe transcends my mom's expectations. Mm -hmm. And so it's been an interesting journey because my mom is actually quite unsupportive of my work. She, uh, she has said she's ashamed of me, that what I do is monkey business, that she feels like she's failed as a mom. Um, none of this is new on this podcast. I've like written social media posts about it and, and I'm very open about it. And I, you know, I, I think I, for my own healing journey, so the healing started first and then the advocacy came I think I needed to share this story that has been my family secret for, you know, at that point in time, it had been my family secret for over a decade. And it is understandable that this isn't just Tiffany's story. It's my mom, my whole family's story. It's, it's not just my individual trauma. And so the journey that I've been on has kind of been despite my, my mom's wishes. And oftentimes she'll come back to me and, you know, the most recent one she said was she was like, she felt like she failed as a mom because she worked so hard to provide her kids with everything. And, and she doesn't feel like she can brag about her kids. And I, I wrote a post about sharing some of this. And I said, 
one of these days, I hope to collect testimonials from people whose lives have been changed by my work or, you know, they've learned something for the better and like put them in a book to share them with her. And so many people commented and DM me and they're like, I'll share or say or said something like, I really resonate with this. But interestingly enough, I make more money now than I ever did at Goldman, right? So if it then if it then comes down to a money thing, I love the way you kind of said at the Always Be Creating launch event, you said like, how do we explain to our parents what we do, right? And to me, it's how do I explain to my parent, to my mom, what I do? But it's through the lens of my receipts. And I guess in this case, it's the financial receipts sure. of like, I'm for the first time, you know, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge some very scrappy entrepreneur advocacy pay zero dollars years where I was Airbnb out stuff and upselling furniture and doing my Gary Vee yeah. thing um, to now. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think, I think there was that real turning point of just understanding that no matter what new accolade or achievement I got, it just would never fit into this vision that I think my mom slash parents had for me and my siblings. How do you, in your work, in your day-to-day -day now, work towards making sure that the way that you decided to define your own dream but have had your fair share of challenges become more easily re realizable? Because I think the, the beauty of our journey is that we're living in this middle generation of having this unique opportunity to redefine everything. And that, unfortunately, in your case, is, is still continuing to be a journey with your mother. But for the next person that wants to share their story or to create a small space, a big space in this world to share their story and to even build a business around it, what advice do you have for that person? Because I think one of the things that I, I want to do so badly, and I hope we do this with this podcast and other ventures, is letting young people know and even older people know that it's okay just to be. And like you said, you being in, you know, oftentimes I think for those of us who've been in corporate spaces and moved on, um, it's not to say that that wasn't the right path. It wasn't the right path for us. But as you mentioned, somebody then rising to the level of partner or vice president or even CEO, that's advocacy too. Mm -hmm. Because people don't expect us to be there. People don't want us to be there. But for those who want to venture down their own path and to redefine and write their own dream chapter what advice do you have because a lot of it is emotional and mental challenges rather than the physical or actual financial ability to create what message do you have for those people that want to yeah i mean one of the things i've been thinking about is like you and i met because we were creators slash speakers in one way or another and i remember my first brand deal ever was five thousand dollars and and that was the that was the only thing I did that whole year. And then the next year, it was like 10K or 15K gross. And then last year, this is all public, last year was 55K. And then this year, it's over six figures, right? And I think a part of that is just, I don't know if it's like sheer persistence. <laughs> um, I, I do think that's a part of it. But I think one of the things I've been thinking about is like, when no one gave me a stage, I created my own. When I couldn't find a community, I created my own, you know, and, and you're doing the same thing in your space, not only with the, your podcast, but also the community that you're cultivating as well, um, is like the barriers to entry are so low that if someone isn't giving you a platform, like be your own, be your own PR hype machine. Mm. Like 
when no one was featuring us in press, like I was writing blog posts about us, you know, I was on LinkedIn being, you have to be your own. And of course, easier said than done, because I think there was a long period of time where I wasn't following this advice, but like, you have to be your own number one cheerleader. And I'm not, I'm not really like that into affirmations, but every once in a while, if I'm having like a low moment, I'm like, and this is something I like learned through therapy when I'm having like an anxious thing is like, what else could be true? So if I feel like everything is going wrong, let me reflect on what is everything that's going right, you know, and whether that's a, a gratitude practice or something else. But, but I think if you hear about my journey, like I did try to be very strategic about not jumping into something without a plan. Mm. So Diversibility had already started making money as a side hustle before I decided, like, let me test out what, you know, doing more, more professional speaking and things like that. I spoke for free for a very long time before I felt comfortable, like starting to charge more. Our community was free for a long time because we weren't sure if people wanted to join or needed one before we decided to explore membership options. Right. So I think that I, I don't I don't want people and this is my own personal journey, but I've tried to be, I don't know if we would call it risk averse, but I've tried to make sure that I'm taken care of in one way or another. Like I, I remember in 2017, when I got fired, I was like, okay, I have unemployment checks coming in for this amount of time, you know, not, not enough, not enough to like cover San Francisco rent, but like at least something that's going to help me get through this next mm. point. Right. That's why these like systems are put into place. Yeah. So, so I think that's what I'll tell them. And also, I think I'll, I wanted to share, I wanted to share a little bit more context about those first 12 years, because I think people see me and they say, you're so vocal, you share your story everywhere, you're so celebrated. And there were 12, those 12 years where I not only diminished myself and made myself really small, but other people did as well. And I think that it's a journey for all of us. And I hope, you know, oftentimes when people ask me about diversity, I say, we're looking to help help the disability community on their shame to pride transformation. Mm. We also know a lot of people may not have that transformation mm. and whether shame to pride resonates with you in any of your other identities or other parts of your life. Like only some of us who decide whether through brute force or, or sheer persistence and also plugging ourselves into community to know that we're not alone actually get through that transformation. Yeah. That's wonderful. I mean, I, I will say if your mom needs stories of people whose lives you have impacted positively, she can always call me. And and I and I can think of many, many other people because I think part of this is dream building isn't a solo sport. It is a team sport, but the team is very fluid because everybody is building their own things and we and we come together for, you know, tactical projects or just encouragement along the way. Um I Really, uh, so happy that we met. I have learned a lot about my language, my viewpoint on inclusivity, quite a bit through our friendship together and just the way that you are, are teaching people, but also bringing people along in the journey, whether it is as a public speaker, as a content creator, but as a disability advocate, truly, truly amazing. And um, thanks again for spending time with us. It's a beautiful sunny day here in LA in, in December. And as we wrap, we're just excited to continue the conversation and help each other build uh, next year and beyond. So, awesome. Thanks, Tiffany. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks. Thank you to Tiffany Yu for sharing her story of her Asian American dream. You can learn more about Tiffany 
at tiffanyu.com or at I'm Tiffany U on Instagram. Also, thank you to Toyota for their partnership of the Asian American Dreamer series on this podcast. Head over to YouTube to watch the full video version of this episode and check out at the Asian Americans on Instagram to view short-form video highlights. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and dear Asian Americans, keep on dreaming.